Hey, everyone out there, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. Now, our big ASAP event, Scientific Assembly Philadelphia, is now behind us. And boy, have we got a lot of clinical content to digest, not only from the conference, but also as available online. So because of that, I wanted to feature something a little different. We normally feature at least something clinical, but we had such a great piece from the magazine that was non-clinical that as I talked to this guest, I realized this had to be the one and only feature of this episode. And this is actually a creative career from the magazine. For those of you who don't know, the column covers ER doctors that are doing really cool things with their careers that aren't just clinical medicine. And that is something we talk about a lot. Sometimes as just pipe dreams when it's 4 a.m. on a night shift and we're super burned out. But all these people that have done creative careers have actually evolved into something totally different. A lot of times keeping their clinical um, practice, at least in part, still alive. Now, this story is one of entrepreneurship. And it is a strong female who I am always so excited to feature strong females in medicine. And while Women in Medicine Month is September, and this is the October episode, you know, it's never too late to celebrate some strong females. So this is a story not only of entrepreneurship, but of an ER doctor, a minority female, a mother, a single mother at that, a founder, a CEO, and an entrepreneur. Now we have here as our guest, Dr. Liz Claiborne, to talk about what it's like to be an ER doctor and to run and found her own company. There's lots of pearls here, everything from life advice to you know, self-confidence advice to medicine versus business. So again, I had to make it the entire episode this month. Check it out. Hey, everyone at ASAP Now. Thanks again for joining me. And I have a really special guest here with us today. I have Dr. Liz Claiborne, who is emergency medicine faculty with University of Maryland and founder and CEO of Nasaclip. Now, I love a strong female story. Nothing more I love than a strong female story with entrepreneurship. So Dr. Liz Claiborne hits all of those. So we have her not only on the ASAP Now magazine as a creative career, but also, of course, on the podcast to talk more about her story. So Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know you're super busy. <laughs> of course. I'm super happy to be here. I was thrilled that you invited me. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I love a good story of entrepreneurship, especially because I feel like every emergency medicine doctor wants, um, wants, if not has, but mostly wants, a side hustle. And I thought Nasaclip was a really unique one. So tell us about what kind of gave you the inspiration, the gusto, the thought to come up with a product in the space. 
Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because this is not something I planned. Um, although now, whenever I talk to my residents, I tell them you absolutely must have a multifaceted career and, you know, aka a side hustle <laughs> that you're doing just because, you know, we have so many stressors in emergency medicine. There's a lot of burnout and there is importance in having some balance in your career. Um, for me, my entrepreneurial journey really just began with um, epistaxis patients. So when I was a resident at George Washington University, I could not believe how many people came into the emergency department for nosebleeds. And I'm sure most ER docs like have a similar reaction when these check patients check in because they're usually a lower acuity patient, but they are so cumbersome to take care of. And so every time someone would check in with a nosebleed, I'd be like, what are you doing here? Like just hold pressure on your nose. I can't believe you would come here and wait hours, you know, to see me over a problem that seems so simple. But when I dug into it a little bit, I realized that, you know, nosebleeds are most common in kids two to 10 and then older adults, especially if they're anticoagulated. And they're like the least likely population to do what they need to to stop a nosebleed, which is to hold constant uninterrupted pressure to their nose. <laughs> Everyone lets go after two seconds or they're pinching their nasal bridge or they're putting their head back, swallowing blood. So they get in there and they're super frustrated because we didn't really have anything to give them. So back in the day, what we were doing is taping together tongue depressors. And I know a lot of EM docs will resonate with this because it's still being done today. And so I was in the middle of that and just thinking to myself, how is there not a device for, you know, nosebleeds that helps people deal with nosebleeds so they don't have to show up here? And that's what got my wheels turning. And when I looked into it, I saw there was a pretty big gap in the market for a really effective first-line rescue device for nosebleeds, especially one that could address both children and adults because kids make like 50% of incidents. So I kind of had this idea in my head and then I didn't know what to do with it. And so fortunately, when I was at GW, I had an attending that was able to kind of direct me to the GW Innovation Center. I applied to the business plan competition and then went from there into uh, NSF, which is the National Science Foundation i and got really a I would say thrown in the deep end and understanding what it takes to get a start off off the ground, make sure you have a product market fit, and then, you know, be able to start fundraising to get your idea to something that's actually a physical product for sale. So for me, the journey started back in 2015 when I was a resident, and we finally launched Nasaclip in July of 2023. So I can go into some details about what happened wow. in that journey, but in the beginning, it was just because I couldn't handle these nosebleed patients and I wanted there to be a better solution. I mean, I love that. It's because like the passion and kind of the annoyance of it uh, triggers innovation. And I think everyone has that moment of like, why does this not exist? Or like, why does X, Y, or Z not work this way? I, I think what's absolutely remarkable about your story is that you actually did it. Like there's obstacles at every level. Like, yeah, how do you fundraise? How does, how do you come up with manufacturing? How do you pass any compliance regulatory stuff? How do you market? So like kind of given that, because I talk to so many docs when I'm just like on shift chit chatting and so many of them are like, this is a great idea. I'm going to do this when I retire or whatever, but I feel like no one actually does it. Like what are some of the biggest lessons or just surprises or things that you learned along this, you know, I mean, eight year, <laughs> eight year journey um, that you think would be helpful for other ER doctors to hear trying to enter the product space? 
Yeah. So some of the things I always tell people when they think they have a good idea or they're interested in being an entrepreneur, and especially if they're interested in bringing like a, a product or device to market, is that first, that fire and drive and attention to actually succeeding has to come from you. If you keep it on the back burner, it will just stay on the back burner forever. It will never move forward. And so I think there came a time around 2020 when I decided to do an accelerator program with Tedco, and that really helped to kind of put into gear some of the things I had been playing around with for a long time. So up until that point, I really just focused on securing my intellectual property and getting my patents, but I hadn't really had that push to say, okay, I'm really going to designate time and effort to getting this done. And I understand why, right? It's hard. Like when I was a resident, I was, you know, graduating from residency and then I got married and then I started a faculty position and I had two kids and life gets busy. Um, and so I had to finally decide, you know, I think this idea has real teeth and this market is large. I've got to put some attention behind it and I'm going to prioritize getting it done. Uh, but that takes a lot of sacrifice and it's going into uncharted territory because I would say the brain or the way that you think as a business person is very different from how we think as physicians. Like it's almost counterintuitive some of the things that you have to be aware of um, in order to be successful in business. So it, it was a lot of kind of trial by fire and, you know, making mistakes and moving past them um, and certainly learning a lot along the journey. But for me, it was like that decision, like, this is a good idea. I can make this work. And especially for me as a black female physician, I also realized there were just not a lot of people from my demographic who were being successful in this space, either with fundraising for startups or just being CEO founders um, as women and mothers and i really wanted uh, my story to be inspirational to other people so that they could knew, know they had what it takes to go after their dreams as well oh my gosh like you just said so many things i want to talk about <laughs> next and 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 i think i'll go this way because you um mentioned it like i i agree i think your story really caught my eye because um not only are you a female physician you're a female physician in entrepreneurship and a female minority physician in entrepreneurship. And there was this line in the creative careers piece where it said, quote, she, like you, made the bold decision to enroll in Tedco Accelerator program during her maternity leave in 2020. And like, I will tell you, I have a 14 month old and maternity leave was like a blur of poop and diapers and God knows what else. So I'm like, wow, like this sounds like a absolutely insane and crazy, crazy time that you launched this, like between maternity, two kids, like COVID, the pandemic. Oh my gosh. So like, how, like, how did you overcome just that obstacle or come with like the mental cojones to go for it during all of that? Yeah. You know, I like that question, Amy, because I think that one of the things I've learned is that women and particularly women of color, I think have the stories of resilience and innovation that prime us to be the best leaders. And this is an example of how that manifested in my own life. So I was six months pregnant when COVID hit. I worked in a very busy hospital in PG County, Maryland, just outside of DC that was extremely hard hit by COVID. So you can imagine that was just stressful in and of itself. 
um, trying to get through that uh, time. And this is back when, you know, we didn't have enough PPE. We had no idea what was going on with COVID. People were dying left and right. Uh, and so me doing that as a pregnant mother and staying on the front lines through the first wave, along with two of my colleagues who were also pregnant, was just like stressful in and of itself. But at the end, I fortunately was able to give birth to a healthy baby girl, my second child, and at the time had an opportunity to do an accelerator program that required full-time participation. So the only time I could do it was during maternity leave. So oh I literally yeah. like entered this program, breastfeeding my baby girl that everyone in my TEDCO uh, cohort are still good friends of mine because it was like, they were like, wow, you are crazy. But that is what it, it, it requires. And to TEDCO's credit, they've actually kind of augmented some of their programs to make it more amenable to people like me because I gave them feedback that as a female founder, you have to give a way for people to participate in this programming and move forward without having to participate full-time. Because for most people who are early stage startups, they're still working full-time or they have a lot of other responsibilities. And it's not like they're a trust fund baby that this can like, you know, <laughs> participate in this accelerator and have nothing else going on. Yeah. But for me, I think because it was such a sacrifice, I took everything out of it I could and really did well with the program. And that was a true springboard for me being able to move forward and then raise another million dollars later um, by the next year. In addition to that, I applied for a National Science Foundation grant, and I think it was this like drive that I had um, because I had personal struggles going on at home. I ended up actually going through a divorce during this time. So I had all these things going on around me, being a mother of young kids, dealing with COVID as a physician, trying to build a company coming from a demographic that did not get a lot of support that I think just made me feel like I'm going to do this, not just for myself, but for the statement it represents that we can be successful as women of color, that we actually can be more successful than our white male counterparts in lots of cases, and that it is important for us to be represented on the scene when it comes to being CEO and founders. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, you mentioned you have a daughter, like, I think that's such an important story for her. Like, I mean, she's too young to remember it, but you know, when she grows up and she hears that, like that is an incredibly empowering proud story to have of her mother and how, you know, her started this company during, you know, that maternity leave. Like, I think that's a absolutely incredible story. And, you know, one I just love amplifying because it's so important to get out there. Um, and, and you mentioned a couple times about minority women. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, what is it that makes that that special to you that not only are you like because I'm a, I feel like you're a subset of a subset of a subset like doctor female minority like single parent <laughs> like I, but I would love to hear how that minority piece really resonates with you so I know it does with a lot of our listeners absolutely you know I practice in an environment where a large proportion of our patient population is black or african-american and so I think it's hugely important that the practitioners that are in medicine are reflective of the patients that they're serving. There's a lot of studies that talk about how race concordance like helps with trust and, you know, building a physician patient relationship. But in general, I also just think that having diversity within medicine strengthens the body of medicine, right? My perspective, my upbringing, my cultural awareness, my background is something that's important that needs to be included in that community. And so fortunately, I guess I am a very verbal member 
of the community and I like to um, share with others like, you know, what I think, what is important and what my experience has been both personally and professionally being a black physician. And I think that that's something that's going to be even more important because our population is just becoming more diverse, right? Not less diverse. And so I think there's still a lot of work that we need to do when it comes to uh, disparities in health and the way that our healthcare structure is um, serving their patients. And a lot of that comes from us not being as mindful or not having systems in place to address a lot of our unconscious bias that leads to inequities in health that will continue to plague populations in the future if we don't have good representation and if we're not actively working towards not just diversifying the physician population, but leadership within our large organizations and institutions that educate and serve patients. So I want to be one of those members. And I think um, not only being a physician and an academic physician, but now being the CEO and founder founder um, and this example of a physician entrepreneur is really working towards that. And both my daughters, because I have two of them, um, are thrilled because it's it's so funny. They both tease me now that they're like, I shouldn't say tease me. They brag to me when they get older <laughs> that they want to be a doctor and a CEO, which I love. Like, that's amazing, yeah. right? If you think about what little girls a generation ago were pretending to be, I don't think it was doctors and CEOs. So I am thrilled that, you know, little black girls now can grow up and that can be their dream. Yeah. And that you've paved the way and created the proof that it can happen like not only as a doctor but the CEO part because I'm I'm sure like you know raising money talking to like equity partners all that is very unusual to have a minority female walk in the room um, and I'd also I, I'd also love um, to hear your thoughts on kind of this medicine versus business thing you actually mentioned it earlier that they're very different. And in my head, as I was listening to you talk, I'm like, well, ER doctors do know how to triage and prioritize pretty good. I'm like, I bet that's good for business. But then I was really curious to hear what you thought was different about the mindset and the work and everything like that. I would say that there's certain parts of business are just more aggressive in the way that your priorities and what you're trying to move towards um, are not necessarily dependent on a, a single or solitary interaction. A lot of medicine, I think, were driven to think about that interaction, physician-patient relationship, how am I, you know, impacting my patient in this setting? Um, businesses are running a little bit more administratively. So maybe an ED director or a CMO of a hospital thinks more business-like, which usually they do, um, and that you're looking at this whole institution, how are we moving it forward, and being mindful that they have to be financially able to move forward in order to be successful. Otherwise, the you know whole point is mute. If you can't make yourself financially successful, then whatever great solution I have, you know, this nosebleed rescue device that I want to be the band-aid of nosebleeds and revolutionize the way that people are caring with uh, for their nosebleeds and avoiding going to the ER won't come to fruition if I'm not being um, careful about how I'm moving forward my business. And it is an uphill battle. I will mention to you a couple of statistics because I think they're really shocking and people are not aware of, you know, basically the disparities that exist within fundraising currently. But as of now, in 2023, only 2% of venture capital goes to women. 2%. And for Blacks, it's like barely above 1%. So my demographic as a Black female is only getting 0.34% of all venture capital. And to illustrate that in another way, on average, a white male founder has to talk to about seven people to get a yes or like an, an actual commitment to invest, whereas a black female founder has to speak to 10 times that amount, 70 people. 
is who they have to speak to to get one yes. So that obviously makes it a lot more challenging for someone like me to be successful, no matter how great my idea is. And I think that that is the landscape that needs to change in the future so that we make it easier for great ideas and great innovation to get to market. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point here too, is that like there is a longevity piece to this, like a, a theme I'm noticing is not only is there, this is obviously a long-term endeavor, um, but there's like a longevity to it. And there's actually a legacy to it too, of like the story um, behind the product. And then, you know, of, of course the product itself, which I think is um, really incredible and probably fulfilling in a very different way than medicine, especially emergency medicine, which is very, I think, short-term to us sometimes. Um, Cause we, you know, we see things in shifts and patients and so on. Um, I, I would, I would love to talk kind of about this more long-term vision. Like I'd love to hear where you think Nasaclip is going. Um, I know you had mentioned in the article that you also recently went, um, part-time. So I'd love to hear about that decision. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, like when you're doing a startup, usually you have other responsibilities. You can't just quit your day job, but you know, I think it's, it's probably a a huge sign of success that you are, that you did go part-time, but I would love to hear kind of about that and what that looks like for your career and Nasaclip. Yeah. So early on, like obviously I had to still work full-time because I had bills and (laughs) student loans to pay off and children to take care of and mortgages to pay. Um, And so I was fortunate by April of this year to be in a position after our fundraising to be able to give myself a little bit of a salary. Obviously it does not replace all the all the kind of um, income I would make as a clinician, but enough for me to step down my time so I can be focused in moving the business forward. Um, but I think there's an internal battle that goes on when you do that because we spent we spend a lot of time becoming a physician, right? You you spend your whole life in school and then residency and possibly fellowship to get to this career. And it was interesting for me so early in my career to be like, okay, am I just going to like let this go? Now I think in emergency medicine in particular, um, our type of specialties really ripe for having these type of opportunities work out because we can work PRN, right? We don't have our practice or patients that we're tied to. You can work shift work and you can always work a little bit. So for me, it's worked out really nicely because I was already feeling, you know, pretty burnt out after COVID as a lot of physicians were. So I was happy to be able to go down to PRN and I still work about four or five shifts a month, which I think is enough to feel like I'm not losing my skill. And also that I still am, you know, in the trenches and understand the challenges mm-hmm. on the clinical ground, which gives me validation in the business world because I'm talking about a medical device that I actually understand how it works both clinically and why it would help a healthcare system be more efficient in taking care of nosebleed patients. So all those things were a win-win-win for me, but it was a little bit of a struggle to, you know, take that leap and go PRN earlier this year. Now that I've done it, I'm thrilled, right? And I feel like it gave me the additional time and energy I need to really move the business forward. So I think for me, my particular future is that my goal is to eventually exit this company and hopefully at a large number, like I'm hoping this is going to be a unicorn exit, meaning close to a billion dollars, which would individually position me to be potentially an angel investor or have my own VC fund to deal with some of those disparities I uh, mentioned earlier and providing capital specifically to women and women of color. And then I do a lot of public speaking, and I think that's another thing I want to pursue in the future. So it's exciting for me to even think about that because this is not how I envisioned my career ending up, but it's such, I think, a miraculous, exciting, and very fulfilling career to have the possibility of having, um, you know, diversifying it further in the future. And um, I'm, I'm really excited to see exactly how it unfolds. Yeah, and I just love hearing that, you know, you're like, hey, I want to exit. It's like, okay, that makes sense. But you're like, 
I want to exit not so I can go sit on a beach and drink my ties, but so that I can go make a bigger difference and continue to grow and change the world, which I'm like, that's just so inspiring to hear. Um, the whole, the whole story has just been incredible. Like, I mean, I think it's incredible to anyone listening, but especially as, um, a female, I'm like, I love the story. I love the inspiration. I would also love to hear your last thoughts for fellow ER doctors that want to break into entrepreneurship. Like it sounds like it needs a whole lot of gusto, a whole lot of hard work, but yeah, I would love to hear what are your, uh, your words for them. The biggest thing to remember is that you have to be your number one cheerleader. So believe in yourself first and understand that people are going to be able to feel the energy you bring to the room. When you talk about your idea or you talk about your business, it's not just exactly what you say, it's the energy and presence you bring with it. And that has to be palpable, right? That has to be your first uh, you know, business presence. And so make sure that you're honing that for yourself and that you believe in yourself and just go after it and don't be afraid. I mean, I think that there were a lot of things I had to do that I would not have gotten through if I really was trying to be careful and cautious instead of just saying, you know what, there's some risks associated with this, but the benefits might be, you know, huge. And the last thing I'll say is if you're an entrepreneur, you always have to hustle. So I will take this opportunity to say if anyone is interested in getting Nasaclip in their ERs or urgent cares, please check out my website or reach out to me on LinkedIn. I think this is a great solution for nosebleed patients. It's something obviously you can use in your everyday life, school nurses, sports medicine, all types of places that I think it's going to revolutionize how we treat nosebleeds, stop them quickly and effectively with minimal resources. And I am all about getting Nasaclip out there. So if you're interested, please follow up with that. And um, of course, I'm always happy to answer any particular questions if people want to reach out to me about ideas that they have or how they can get into the role of being an entrepreneur and a founder of a startup. Oh, that's amazing. And I love the advice because being your own cheerleader and always be hustling, like that's good advice, not just for ER doctor entrepreneurs, but just for, for life in general. So Dr. Liz Claiborne, founder and CEO of Nasaclip. Thank you again so much for spending your time with us. We'll, of course, drop links, um, and we appreciate you know how gracious you were with your time and with your story. Thank you for having me. So if you aren't wowed and inspired by Dr. Liz Claiborne, well, you probably weren't listening. <laughs> As she puts out there so generously, look for her and her product, Nasaclip, but also reach out if you need mentorship and to hear from someone who has actually done it. So that is it for us this episode. Tweet us if you have an idea at ASAPNow or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho for any questions, comments, things you'd like to see in the magazine otherwise. Now, as always, I think you all have the magazines in your inboxes now, your mailboxes right now. But I want to really highlight to check out a couple great trauma pieces. There's a great brain trauma piece on our front page by Andy Jagoda about brain trauma guidelines for emergency medicine. And there's a piece that is something I hadn't really thought about, but traumatizing patients with trauma activations. Now, the authors, uh, Dr. Kate LeBold and Sonia Eagle, had just a really interesting point that these trauma activations are things that, if you're at a trauma center, you are so used to. But from a patient perspective, a lot of the things we do 
are really jarring. And I highlight this piece because it just made me think about trauma. It made me think about the next activation that I ran after I uh, read this piece. So it really did change my perspective. Um, as always, we also have tons of content in ASAP for you. This month's is your employer should be an open book, which is very timely for everything going on. We also have a great piece by Dr. Abramoff about civic engagement as a way to stop burnout, which is something we've talked about before on this podcast, and we have so much more. So check out your mailboxes and we will see you all next time.